0: Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 73.
1: It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Was the age of never mind it is a truth how a this is. I don't know, know, money. Money. You you don't know about me show. without you.
2: Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat. Step onto your favorite fitness machine or lace up your walking shoes and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors.
0: Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky.
1: We're in the midst of a downpour, so if you hear a loud blast, don't worry. Just know our house was hit by lightning. Well, no, not really. The fact is, we don't get much thunder and lightning around here, much to Steve's disappointment. But maybe, just maybe, ah, uh, Bolt or two will zap us tonight. You never know. In the meantime, he'll read a story by a new-to-us Washington author, Roger Pond, from a book with a fun title. I'll let Steve introduce it. Yes, this
0: book is called, My Dog Was a Redneck, But We Got Him Fixed. (laughs) And the excerpt from it is, My Dog Was a Redneck. Ta-da! I May Be a Bit of a Redneck. I'm always more comfortable around loggers and cowboys than in the company of those other folks I call city people. Where I grew up, a redneck was just a person with an uneven suntan. We got that way because our hats protected our heads and everybody's shirt collar was rolled up to exclude the dust and chaff. Only the neck got tan. A person who went into the field without a hat and a long-sleeved shirt was considered some kind of dummy in those days. Some folks may be offended by the redneck image, But I'm not. That's the nature of the beast. If you can be offended, you're not a redneck. I'll always remember a story a wheat farmer told me some years ago. This fellow often employed college kids during a wheat harvest, and one year he hired a young man who was a cheerleader at a major university. This kid was the opposite of a redneck. He showed up in the field wearing shorts and tennis shoes. Then he did a few stretching exercises and proceeded to coat himself from ankles to ears with suntan lotion. The combine operator nearly fell out of the cab. This young fellow was so upbeat and cheerful, you couldn't get mad at him. And even if you did, it probably wouldn't do any good. My favorite redneck story involves a woman who used to visit our family when I was a kid. We'll call her Julia to protect the innocent, the blameless, And the near guilty. Julia had a heart of gold and a happy way of making outrageous statements completely by accident. All of us kids would gather round when she came to visit. Like many of her generation, Julia didn't care what she said as long as people understood what she meant. Deciphering what she really meant was her husband's job. Howard, not his real name either, was always nearby to correct misstatements and improve clarity. He was never stumped as far as I can remember. Julia would be describing her sister's illness. The doctors think Gladys is doing better, she said. He gets the results of her autopsy next week. Howard would think for a second and say, Biopsy. One day, Julia's car wasn't running. The mechanic says it will cost around $80. There's something wrong with the fuel rejector, she said. She spoke about people whose wages had been garnished and a woman who had her nymph glands removed. (laughs) One visit, Julia described a puppy Howard bought her in town. That dog is such a redneck, we can't leave him in the house, she said. The dog is a roughneck, Howard interjected. Howard thinks we should have him tutored, but I don't see how that would help. What do you think, she asked. Her husband looked puzzled. Finally, he smiled faintly and said, She means fixed.
1: Titled The Magician. And this story is in a collection of short stories we called Passageways. And three other Idaho authors joined with me in this little endeavor Lisa Hess, Val Gray, and Peter Level. But this particular story, The Magician, uh, is one that I wrote. And I just need to warn you that it's probably the weirdest story that I ever wrote. So, now you're warned. Seated on metal bleachers with two dozen other parents under a sweltering August sun, I fanned my face with a paper plate and watched Mr. Magic prepare to perform his final trick. He folded his arms and scanned the 10-year-olds clustered on the grass in front of his platform. Who wants to be my last victim or um, volunteer. Our son punched his chubby hand high and frantically waved it above his head. Even though Joy had been passed over every other time the birthday party magician asked for a volunteer, he hadn't lost his enthusiasm. "'Me, me, pick me!' Like a metronome set on high, his waggling arm blurred in my vision. From beneath his thick black eyebrows, the man glared at the screaming children. Finally, he crooked a finger at Joy, who sprang to his feet, clambered onto the stage and spun around, hands on his waist. He stuck out his chest as if proud of the green frosting smeared down the front of his new Iron Man t-shirt. Bright freckles flamed against his sunburned cheeks. My husband, Roger, leaned close to me. This should be interesting. The perspiration trailing down his temples glistened in the sunshine. I pulled my sweat-soaked blouse away from my torso. I hope he doesn't ruin the trick. Your son isn't exactly one to follow directions. If we're lucky, Roger said. It'll go fast and we can beat the crowd to Bert's burgers. He dug a handkerchief from his back pocket and wiped his brow. I lifted damp hair from my neck. First thing I'll order is a large Pepsi with lots of ice. The magician held his microphone in front of Joy. What's your name? Joy, Hunter. Our son's shout vibrated the metal stands we sat on and onlookers covered their ears. They obviously had children who spoke in normal decibel levels. Joy hopped from one foot to the other. What trick are we doing, Mr. Magic? Mr. Magic looked toward the bleachers. Does Joy Hunter have a parent or a guardian in the crowd? Roger and I looked at each other and then raised our hands. This, proclaimed the magician, is a very dangerous trick. The king of illusions. Do I have your permission to incorporate your son into the act? Joey grabbed at the microphone, missed, and knocked it out of the man's hand. When it crashed to the stage, the loud crackle made everyone flinch. Before the magician could retrieve the microphone, Joey snatched it up and shrieked, say yes. Everyone turned to stare at us. Roger shrugged. What could be the harm? I whispered, Mr. Magic didn't ask permission for the other tricks. Roger leaned close. It's part of the act, Susan, the build-up for the finale. Mom, Dad, come on. Joey whined, his nasal voice loud and distorted. Knowing Joey, his mouth was on the microphone. Against my better judgment, I said, Okay. Roger gave the magician a thumbs up. Go for it. Joy thrust his fist into the air. Yes! Arms flapping, he jumped up and down like a deranged turkey. On one of the upswings, the magician snatched the microphone from his hand. His assistant rolled out a table from behind the curtain and helped Joy stretch across it. Then she turned up the volume on the boom box. Mr. Joy Hunter called the magician, reaching into his trunk of tricks. Are you ready? "'I'm ready, Mr. Magic!' His smile stretched from ear to ear and his whole body quivered with anticipation. A drum roll. A flash of reflected sunshine. A saw blade on our son's belly. "'What?' I gasped and grabbed Roger's arm. In sync with the song's pulsating rhythm, the magician, with his assistant's help, pulled the saw back, pushed it forward, pulled back, pushed forward, I wanted to scream to tell the magician to stop mutilating my child, but I couldn't breathe, let alone speak. Joy did not flinch. The music rose to a crescendo and Mr. Magic swung the blade triumphantly upward. Ta-da! Before I could process what the ta was all about, the assistant grabbed Joy's hips and legs and stood them upright. Oh, no, the words squeaked from my throat, but Roger just grinned and patted my hand. Mr. Magic slid behind Joy's head, grasped him under the arms, and set him on his ribs. Do a push-up. Joy lifted himself with his arms, up, down, up, down, obviously pleased with the ease of the effort. He'd always preferred video games to exercise. Move your legs. One foot kicked out, then the other. Cries of disbelief bounced through the bleachers. Joy's top half flipped off the table, shimmied down Mr. Magic's legs, and hopped through the grass to climb a tree. His legs and feet did a little dance before skipping merrily after his upper body. I jumped up. We can't just sit here, Roger. As the other horrified parents grabbed their children and ran for their cars, we headed for Joy's tree, but the legs ran away. I'd never seen our son move so fast. Roger pursued the fleeing half, and I parked under the tree branch. "'Joy, sweetie, the party's over. Time to go.' He snickered. "'Can't make me, Mom.' I clenched my fists. This was no time to get into my usual power game with our stubborn son. "'Remember where we're going for lunch?' The smirk faded. Food had always been Joy's weakness. "'You can get the super-duper shake and... double fries.' He swung off the branch and into my arms, nearly knocking me over. "'Really?' His breath smelled like frosting. Really? Now let's go find your legs. But I like being two people. They won't let you into birchburgers Burgers without the rest of your body. Joy frowned. Why not? Remember the sign on the door? The one that says, No shirt, no shoes, no service? Yeah, so? This part of you doesn't have shoes and your bottom doesn't have a shirt. His lower lip pooched. Bummer. We returned to the platform just as Roger offered the legs to Mr. Magic. Time to put him back together. The magician jutted his chin. That'll cost you. Joy wriggled in my arms and his legs kicked at Roger. I don't want to go back together. I tightened my hold on his chest. But you just said. I don't care what I said. He began beating on my forearms. Roger stuffed Joey's lower half into a nearby metal trash can. I started to object, but Roger shook his head. Just for a minute, to keep him contained. I could barely hear him over the sound of Joey's legs banging against the metal, like a cymbal player gone mad. Someone needed to stop this craziness. I looked around for the assistant, but she was nowhere in sight. Roger grabbed our son's upper half from me and thrust it at the magician. Fix him now, Mr. Magic yelled above the racket. What's it worth to you? "'Joy clawed at Roger's hands. "'Roger swore, seized one of Joy's flailing arms "'and then the other and pinned them both to his torso. "'That's enough, son. We have to go now. "'No, no, no!' "'Joy looked like he was about to explode. "'I reached for him, but Roger set Joy on the ground "'in front of the magician. "'When he straightened, a strange light illuminated his eyes. "'What's it worth to you, Mr. Magic?' The magician's eyebrows soared almost to his hairline. He stepped back. Joey looked from his father to the magician and then back again. A slow grin spread across his smeared face. He lunged at the magician and clutched his leg. I'll be the most fantabulous, super awesomeness, bestest assistant you ever had. Mr. Magician raised his palms. Oh, no, no, I can't. Roger took my hand. Let's go get that Pepsi, sweetheart, with lots of ice. I kissed his cheek. You must have read my mind.
0: Here's another weird story. This one is by Saki, a 19th century British author whose real name was Hector Hugo Monroe. Say that ten times fast. It's titled The Interlopers, In a forest of mixed growth somewhere on the eastern spurs of the Carpathians, a man stood one winter night watching and listening, as though he waited for some beast of the woods to come within the range of his vision, and later of his rifle. But the game for whose presence he kept so keen an outlook was none that figured in the sportsman's calendar as lawful and proper for the chase. Ulrich von Gradwitz patrolled the dark forest in quest of a human enemy. The forest lands of Gradwitz were of wide extent and well stocked with game. The narrow strip of precipitous woodland that lay on its outskirt was not remarkable for the game it harbored or the shooting it afforded, but it was the most jealously guarded of all its owners' territorial possessions. A famous lawsuit in the days of his grandfather had wrested it from the illegal possession of a neighboring family of petty landowners. The dispossessed party had never acquiesced in the judgment of the courts, and a long series of poaching affrays and similar scandals had embittered the relationships between the families for three generations. The neighbor feud had grown into a personal one since Ulrich had come to be head of his family. If there was a man in the world whom he detested and wished ill to, it was George Snynum, the inheritor of the quarrel and the tireless game-snatcher and raider of the disputed border forest. The feud might, perhaps, have died down or been compromised if the personal ill-will of the two men had not stood in the way. As boys they had thirsted for one another's blood, as men each prayed that misfortune might fall on the other. And this wind-scourged winter night Ulrich had banded together his foresters to watch the dark forest, not in quest of four-footed quarry. But to keep a lookout for the prowling thieves whom he suspected of being afoot from across the land boundary, the roebuck, which usually kept in the sheltered hollows during a storm wind, were running like driven things tonight, and there was movement and unrest among the creatures that were wont to sleep through the dark hours. Assuredly, there was a disturbing element in the forest, and Ulrich could guess the quarter from whence it came. He strayed away by himself from the watchers, whom he had placed in ambush on the crest of the hill, and wandered far down the steep slopes amid the wild tangle of undergrowth, peering through the tree trunks and listening through the whistling and skirling of the wind and the restless beating of the branches, for sight and sound of the marauders. If only on this wild night, in this dark, lone spot, he might come across George Zynum, man to man, with none to witness, that was the wish that was uppermost in his thoughts, and as he stepped round the trunk of a large beach, he came face to face with the man he sought. The two enemies stood glaring at one another for a long, silent moment. Each had a rifle in his hand, each had hate in his heart, and murder uppermost in his mind. The chance had come to give full play to the passions of a lifetime, But a man who has been brought up under the code of a restraining civilization cannot easily nerve himself to shoot down his neighbor in cold blood and without word spoken, except for an offense against his hearth and honor. And before the moment of hesitation had given way to action, a deed of nature's own violence overwhelmed them both. A fierce shriek of the storm had been answered by a splitting crash over their heads and ere they could leap aside, a mass of falling beech-tree had thundered down on them. Ulrich von Gradwitz found himself stretched on the ground, one arm numb beneath him, and the other held almost as helplessly in a tight tangle of forked branches. While both legs were pinned beneath the fallen mass, his heavy shooting-boots had saved his feet from being crushed to pieces but if his fractures were not as serious as they might have been, at least it was evident that he could not move from his present position till someone came to release him. The descending twig had slashed the skin of his face and he had to wink away some drops of blood from his eyelashes before he could take in a general view of the disaster. At his side, so near that under ordinary circumstances he could almost have touched him, lay George Sinem, alive and struggling, but obviously as helplessly pinioned down as himself. All round them lay a thick-strewn wreckage of splintered branches and broken twigs. Relief at being alive and exasperation at his captive plight brought a strange medley of pious thank-offerings and sharp curses to Ulrich's lips. George, who was early blinded with the blood which trickled across his eyes, stopped his struggling for a moment to listen, and then gave a short, snarling laugh. "'So you're not killed as you ought to be, but you're caught anyway,' he cried. "'Caught fast! "'Ho, what a jest!' Ulrich von Gradwitz! snared in his stolen forest. "'There's real justice for you.' "'I'm caught in my own forest land,' retorted Ulrich. "'When my men come to release us, you will wish, perhaps, "'that you were in a better plight than caught poaching on a neighbor's land. "'Shame on you.' George was silent for a moment. Then he answered quietly. "'Are you sure that your men will find much to release? "'I have men, too, in the forest tonight, close behind me, "'and they will be here first to do the releasing. "'When they drag me out from under these branches, "'it won't need much clumsiness on their part "'to roll this massive trunk right over on the top of you. "'Your men will find you dead under a fallen beech tree. "'For form's sake, I shall send my condolences to your family.' "'It's a useful hint,' said Ulrich fiercely.' My men had orders to follow in ten minutes' time, seven of which must have gone by already. And when they get me out, I will remember the hint. Only as you will have met your death poaching on my lands, I don't think I can decently send any message of condolence to your family. Good, snarled George. Good. We fight this quarrel out to the death. You and I and our foresters, with no cursed interlopers to come between us. Death and damnation to you, Ulrich von Gradwitz. The same to you, George Zynum, forest thief, game snatcher. Both men spoke with the bitterness of possible defeat before them, for each knew that it might be long before his men would seek him out or find him. It was a bare matter of chance which party would arrive first on the scene. Both had now given up the useless struggle to free themselves from the mass of wood that held them down. Ulrich limited his endeavors to an effort to bring his one partially free arm near enough to his outer coat pocket to draw out his wine flask. Even when he had accomplished that operation, it was long before he could manage the unscrewing of the stopper or get any of the liquid down his throat. But what a heaven-sent draught it seemed! It was an open winter, and little snow had fallen as yet, hence the captives suffered less from the cold and might have been the case at that season of the year. Nevertheless, the wine was warming and reviving to the wounded man, and he looked across with something like a throb of pity to where his enemy lay, just keeping the groans of pain and weariness from crossing his lips. "'Could you reach this flask if I threw it over to you?' asked Ulrich suddenly. "'There is good wine in it, and one may as well be as comfortable as one can. "'Let us drink, even if tonight one of us dies.' "'No, I can scarcely see anything. "'There is so much blood caked round my eyes,' said George. "'And in any case, I don't drink wine with an enemy.' Ulrich was silent for a few minutes and lay listening to the weary screeching of the wind. An idea was slowly forming and growing in his brain, an idea that gained strength every time that he looked across at the man who was fighting so grimly against pain and exhaustion. In the pain and languor that Ulrich himself was feeling, the old fierce hatred seemed to be dying down. "'Neighbor,' he said presently, "'do as you please if your men come first. It was a fair compact, but as for me, I've changed my mind. If my men are the first to come, you shall be the first to be helped, as though you were my guest. We have quarreled like devils all our lives over this stupid strip of forest, where the trees can't even stand upright in a breath of wind. Lying here tonight thinking, I've come to think we've been rather fools. There are better things in life than getting the better of a boundary dispute. Neighbor, if you will help me to bury the old quarrel, I I, I will ask you to be my friend. George Znaim was silent for so long that Ulrich thought perhaps he had fainted with the pain of his injuries. Then he spoke slowly and in jerks. How the whole region would stare and gabble if we rode into the market square together. No one living can remember seeing a Zynum and a von Gradwitz talking to one another in friendship. And what peace there would be among the forester folk if we ended our feud tonight. And if we chose to make peace among our people, there is none other to interfere. No interlopers from outside. You would come and keep the Sylvester night beneath my roof? and I would come and feast on some high day at your castle. I would never fire a shot on your land, save when you invited me as a guest, and you should come and shoot with me down in the marshes where the wild fowl are. In all the countryside there are none that could hinder if we willed to make peace. I never thought to have wanted to do other than hate you all my life, but I think I have changed my mind about things too this last half hour. And you offered me your wine flask, Ulrich von Gradwitz, I will be your friend. For a space both men were silent, turning over in their minds the wonderful changes that this dramatic reconciliation would bring about. In the cold, gloomy forest, with the wind tearing in fitful gusts through the naked branches and whistling round the tree trunks, they lay and waited for the help that would now bring release and succor to both parties. And each prayed a private prayer that his men might be the first to arrive so that he might be the first to show honorable attention to the enemy that had become a friend. Presently, as the wind dropped for a moment, Ulrich broke silence. Let's shout for help, he said. He said, in this lull our voices may carry a little way. They won't carry far through the trees and undergrowth, said George, but we can try. Together, then. The two raised their voices in a prolonged hunting call. "'Together again,' said Ulrich a few minutes later, after listening in vain for an answering halloo. "'I heard nothing but the pestilential wind,' said George hoarsely. There was silence again for some minutes, and then Ulrich gave a joyful cry. "'I can see figures coming through the wood. They are following the way I came down the hillside.' Both men raised their voices in as loud a shout as they could muster. "'They hear us.' They've stopped. Now they see us. They're running down the hill toward us, cried Ulrich. How many of them are there? asked George. I can't see distinctly, said Ulrich. Nine or ten. Then they are yours, said George. I had only seven out with me. They're making all the speed they can, brave lads, said Ulrich gladly. Are they your men? asked George. Are they your men? he repeated impatiently as Ulrich did not answer. No, said Ulrich with a laugh, the idiotic, chattering laugh of a man unstrung with a hideous fear. Who are they? asked George quickly, straining his eyes to see what the other would gladly not have seen.
2: Wolves.
1: This short... by Nevada author Christina Foster is titled Like Balls. Words bounce like balls, like balls off the walls, searching, not finding, a promise that's binding. Echoes truth crying, together still trying, a turn in the road where hearts may corrode. Light muted not dim, with sorrow's smug grin to promise no more. Life's treasures galore.
0: We couldn't think of a better way to finish off these somewhat dark readings than to conclude with an essay by David Roper about death. This is called The Great Awakening. One short sleep passed, and we wake eternally. That's a quote by John Donne. I have a treasured memory of gatherings with family friends when our boys were small. We adults would talk into the night. The children, weary with play, would curl up on a couch or chair and fall asleep. When it was time to leave, I would gather our boys in my arms, carry them to the car one by one, lay them in the back seat, and take them home. When we arrived, I would pick them up again, take them to their beds, tuck them in, kiss them good night, turn out the light and close the door. In the morning they would awaken, at home. This has become a parable for me of the night on which we sleep in Jesus and awaken in our eternal home, the home that will at last heal the weariness and homesickness that has marked our days. Poets, philosophers, and reconteurs have often compared sleep and death In sleep, our eyes are closed, our bodies are still, our respiration so slight we seem not to be breathing at all. Ancient writers, in fact, referred to sleep as a little death. The New Testament writers picked up the symbol and gave it new meaning. While secular Greek poets and other authors referred to death as perpetual sleep or everlasting sleep, the sacred text speaks of sleep that leads to a great awakening. Early Christians seized on the symbol. The catacombs in Rome, which were first constructed and used by the early Christians for burial sites, were called coimateria, our word is cemetery, or sleeping places, a belief reflected in numerous inscriptions on sarcophagi, as in, she sleeps in Jesus. Early Christians could extract the full meaning of the metaphor because they understood that death is almost exactly like sleep. We slumber and awaken immediately after. We're not conscious of time when we fall asleep. Thus sleep is good and nothing to fear. Death, in fact, is heaven's cure for all earth's afflictions. Good for what ails us, my mother used to say. John Donne, whom I quoted above, has one of the best commentaries on death as sleep, or so it seems to me. He begins with his oft-quoted phrase, Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful for thou art not so. Really, we ask? Death, not dreadful? Dunn, a devout Christian, answers that death cannot boast because it cannot kill us. Death is mere rest and sleep. And he continues, there is great pleasure in sleep. Much more must flow. A place to rest our weary bones. Why swellest thou then? Dunn asks of death. One short sleep past. We wake eternally, and death shall be no more. I came across an Old Testament text the other day, a closing comment that Moses died at the word of the Lord. The Hebrew text reads, Moses died with the mouth of the Lord, a phrase ancient rabbis translated, with the kiss of the Lord. Is it asking too much to envision God bending over us on our final hour? tucking his children into bed, kissing us goodnight, then one short sleep passed, we wake eternally. We're all getting closer to that great getting up day. That's by David Roper. That's it for this podcast.
1: Thank you for joining us. Until next time, happy reading.
2: Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at BeckyLyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting BeckyLyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carey Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.